Well, I am very excited to ask you to do something right now. Would you get your Bibles open? That's one of the best things I will ever ask you. Will you get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 7, but not just today during this message? Would, would you get your Bibles open every day of the week? Would you get your Bibles open whenever somebody comes to you and says, hey, I need to make a decision and I don't know what to do, or I'm, I need some counsel? Well, open up your Bible and counsel that person. You are able to do that, and God will use you to do that. So let's be a people that have the Bible open all the time. And if this is a place that you don't really know what to do, you don't really usually have the Bible open, get the one right in front of you, that blue one, open it up to page 811, and you're going to find Matthew chapter 7. And the reason that I'm going to ask you to do that is because we're actually going to start with a brief recap in chapter 5. So Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to follow along with what I'm about to remind you of that we've covered in this sermon series. So look at verse 3, chapter 5. It begins what are called the Beatitudes. These are the attitudes that we ought to have, but more than that, more beautifully than that, this is the character of Jesus. This is what Jesus looks like, and it's what he is making us to look like. And so we looked at the character that Christ has for his disciples, and then you get down a little further of chapter 5, right around 12 or 13, you're going to all of a sudden see the calling of his disciples. Now look at that with me. Everybody look at your Bibles. We're to be Christian, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. That's our calling. So when shootings happen, like they did horrifically, And like they are constantly doing in other forms of violence, we ought to be the light of the world. We ought to be the salt of the earth. How do we enter into that pain? What's our answer to people? It can't be glib. It can't be trite. It must be compassionate. It must be willing to come alongside suffering. But we hold out the words of truth. And so nothing happens in this world that surprises God. He's in control of everything, and he is raising up the church to move. That's our calling to enter into this world, the world system, very dark as we're seeing more and more, very evil, very morally decaying, and I use decaying, it's a process, it is worsening. Well, our calling is to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And then he moves to the condition of his disciples. Our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, you remember their righteousness was outer righteousness. They did the things they were supposed to do, but their hearts were were full of sin. Their hearts were full of, of animosity to God, legalism, judgmentalism, pride, arrogance. What Jesus says is that the heart of his disciples must be made new. We must be full of righteousness, which he gives to us when we come to him in faith for salvation. And then he moves beyond that and says, all right, I'm going to show you six conducts that my disciples must evidence as they live in this world. And we looked at what we do with anger, we looked at what we do in our marriages. We looked at what we, we are to do with our oaths or with our word and in our integrity. He gives six of these conducts that we are to have as his disciples. And then he begins to follow them with command after command. 
You see, God has commands. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. And Pastor Tim Van Summeren last week showed us the final one of his commands. We must enter the narrow gate. That's a command. We've got to leave everything at that narrow gate. You've got to leave your pride. Now listen, listen very carefully to this because this is critically important for us. You've got to leave your independence at the gate. You've got to leave your self-confidence at the gate, meaning your confidence in your own goodness. God, you will save me. You will love me. You will let me into heaven because I'm a good person. You got to leave that at the gate. You got to leave your self-reliance at the gate. You got to leave any notion of self-righteousness at the gate. I've done a lot of really good things in my life, so I'm acceptable to God based on that. Well, that won't get you into heaven. It won't get you through that narrow gate because baggage can't fit through it. Just you, humble, poor in spirit, realizing Christ has done everything for you. That's why he died on the cross. You can't bring anything to barter for your salvation. Well, that was the command that Pastor Tim brought to us. But there are many, now, now you're ready, we're segueing now into the rest of this sermon series. There are many who will try and prevent people from getting into that narrow gate. Now listen, they're actually trying to distract they're trying to move you beyond the narrow gate to the broader one, the easier one, the one that looks more exciting. And those people are called false prophets, false teachers, false brothers. There's a lot of names for them in the Bible. And so now Jesus begins to give us, he's going to give us three. We're going to look at the first one today. He gives us three cautions for his disciples. Now we've kept that alliterated with the word C from everything from character, calling, condition, conduct, commands, now cautions. And we're going to jump right into it. What's the caution that he gives? It's very apparent. So I want to pull your attention to chapter 7. So let's get in there together. And we're going to look at this, get right down to our text. And you're going to see it in verse 15. And here's the caution, beware of false prophets. Now, let me get you something in your mind that I know you will be able to relate with, every single one of us. And this is going to get us ready, primed and ready to really stay into the point that Jesus is about to make. About a month and a half, maybe it might have been two months ago, I made a purchase on Craigslist. And what I purchased was all the way down in Fairfax, Virginia. And so I drove down to Fairfax, Virginia to buy this and to bring it back to Easton, to our home. And when I got there, I discovered very quickly that the seller was as suspicious of me as I was of him. And so here I come with cash. And he's worrying that this cash might be counterfeit money. So we go into his home, Fairfax, Virginia. Ended up being a really nice guy. I had a really good time talking to him. And we go into his home. We're sitting at his dining room table. And he takes the money that I've given to him to purchase this commodity. And he says, my friend, I called my friend 
who's an expert in counterfeit money, and he taught me some things to look for. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to select at random a few of the bills that you're giving to me, and I'm going to teach you. We'll look at it together. So he begins to walk me through how you find counterfeit money. And some of the words that I never knew before, you look at the security threads, you look at the fine line printing patterns. He's holding this up. He's showing me these. He, we look at the watermark. You look at the color shifting ink. There's like four or five more things that you need to look for if you're going to really be astute at detecting counterfeit money. So I want you to be able to take that silly little metaphor that I just talked to you, that little illustration that I just shared with you, and this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to teach us how to detect false teaching. Now, if you're going to listen to him and you're going to act on what he preaches in this sermon, you're going to begin applying that to my preaching. You should. You're going to begin applying that to anybody who's preaching or teaching you sit under, and you should. And you're going to begin developing a better metrics for yourself when you're studying the Word of God to be able to know when you're kind of going astray a little bit. You're going to find, if you haven't yet, as you mature in Jesus, as you walk long with Him, that when somebody says something that is not true, there is a metaphorically raised eyebrow in your heart. There is a little nagging suspicion that enters your mind immediately. Where that comes from are two sources. The main one's the Holy Spirit, who guides us into all truth. And if you're a Christian, then God the Spirit lives in your heart. And one of the tasks, one of the functions, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, of which he delights, is to show you what is truth so that you can exalt it, so that you can great, take great joy in it, and conversely to show you what's not true so that you can be aware of it. That's the word of Jesus. So that you can be cautious about it and hopefully correct it. Now that's one source of what provokes this raised eyebrow in your heart. The other one is being long in the word of God. You see, the more you know the word, the more quickly lies are detected. This is your lie detector. This is your false teaching detector. And one of the things that I'm going to teach you, which I did back in Jude series a couple years ago, is that there's a difference between bad teaching, of which any of us can do, certainly me included, and false teaching. So we don't want to go on a witch hunt we want to be alert. We want to be discerning. And that's what we're going to learn. But Jesus gives us here the caution. And here's what he says. Beware of false prophets. Now stop right there for a second. If I were you, I would underline the word beware or whatever your translation has. And I would put a little note in the margin. Every single time this word occurs in the Bible, it's an alarm. It's an alarm. It's meant to sound the klaxon bells. It's meant to... Start the alarm so that you know, wait a minute, something is off. Beware of false prophets is a warning. And Jesus is warning us, not that there may one day come false prophets. Look at your text. You're going to get the grammar of this. But the danger is now. There are already false prophets. 
He's not telling them, beware, there's going to one day be false prophets. He's telling them, listen, there's false prophets now. In fact, some of them were in attendance when he preached. Some of them were the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, here's a fun fact that's actually blisteringly impactful. It ought to sober us immediately. In the Old Testament, God's people were called Israel. And the greatest threat to Israel, now you're listening to this, this is so important. The greatest threat to Israel never came from outside of them. It wasn't the Philistines, it wasn't the Amalekites, it wasn't the Moabites. The greatest threat always, and I mean always, was coming from within them, and the threat's name was false prophets. And they were wildly impactful. Just ask Solomon's heir, who consulted the young prophets, and consulted the young counselors. King after king had right counselors, true counselors, true prophets, and false prophets. And when they listened to the false prophet, Israel suffered every single time. The greatest threat to Israel, now listen, and the New Testament church and the modern church, it's not from outside. Listen, it's not from godless agendas that are trying to press against the church. It's not from imminent persecution. It's not from taking away tax exemption status of churches. That, those are forms of persecution, I'm telling you, that are coming, likely in our day and age. They will be here in greater measure. The greatest threat, however, is nothing from external. It's always from those right in the church who gain a voice of prominence, but they're not from God. They're false teachers and they're false prophets. See, they stand metaphorically at the narrow gate. And they deceive people to pass beyond that gate heading to the broad one that leads, Jesus just said, the verses before this, that leads to destruction. Now Jesus is going to say this in utterly clear fashion in Matthew chapter 24 when he's beginning to talk about the end times. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even those who are chosen by God, even those who have the hand of God upon them, they're going to try to lead even them astray. They lead astray, meaning that they have found their way to a position of influence. Listen, if you're going to lead astray, that means you're in front. You don't lead astray from the back. So you've got a position of influence. You've got a position of leadership. And the direction that these false prophets and these false Christs are going to lead people is always away from the narrow gate. They don't want to be leading people to Christ. They want to lead them away from Christ. Now look at your text because his caution deepens a little bit. He says, they will come to you in sheep's clothing. They will come to us. That means they're moving. They're in motion. Now, you got to get every single word in the Bible and the original manuscripts was chosen 
purposefully. That's called the inerrancy of the Bible. You've got two forms of inerrancy that people talk about. Little fun fact of theology. You've got verbal inspiration and you've got plenary inspiration. Now, if you ever go on a work trip to a conference and you go to the plenary session, that means the full session. That's where everybody goes. So plenary inspiration is that the entire Bible is inspired by God. It is inerrant. Verbal inspiration means that even the very particular words that the Bible contains, the very agenda behind them that God has, the very reason that he uses this word here and this word there, all of that's inspired by God. So Jesus, when he's preaching, every word drips with full inspiration and and, and verbal inspiration. So when he says, they will come to you in sheep's clothing, he could have simply said, they're going to have sheep's clothing on, or they're going to look like uh, sheep, but they're not going to be. They come to you means they're in motion. Now that ought to frighten you. Not frighten you like you give up hope, frighten you into sobriety. You really ought to be more alert. I ought to be more alert. If I give somebody a platform to speak to me from a leadership position, an influential position, then I ought to really be examining what they're saying. And you ought to be doing that to me. They will come to you in sheep's clothing. They're on the move. And they will look like they're sent from God. And their words are going to sound Good. But when they come, they're not going to really be looking like false prophets. I don't know any false teacher that actually blatantly looks like a false teacher until you really begin to examine their words. They will come in sheep's clothing, verse 15, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And Paul warns us of this. He says in Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, that's the church, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So here, let me, let me give you a little bit of a glimpse of what Satan does. Satan hates the church absolutely hates Christians. And there are people that he plants. Well, I'm not a believer in Satan. I don't think he really does that. I'm telling you what the word of God says, and I'm telling you what is happening in churches all over the world. He plants people in churches that have a lot of knowledge. And most churches, and sometimes ours notwithstanding, can look, wow, you've got a lot of knowledge. You're really successful in life. How about a leadership position? Well, you've got to be really careful with that. He plants people that are wildly successful in life, that look like they've got a lot of knowledge, that are full of charisma, full of grace, meaning that they can pull people after them. They're influential people, but they're false prophets. They're false teachers, and they're living right in the pew today. Now, some of you are starting to look at each other kind of like suspicious. I don't want you to do that. I want you to look at discernment at everybody. You examine the fruit. We're going to get to that in a moment. 
This is Satan's agenda. He wants to destroy you, Christian. If you think that, you know what, he, he doesn't really have a personal vendetta against me. He hates you. And all of his legions of minions, fallen angels, one-third of them, they hate you. They hate me. And they want to try to destroy our faith. Now, the good thing, Christian, is you're the elect. He can't do anything to you that God does not allow. He is sovereign. Satan isn't. So you don't need to be living in fear. You need to be living with awareness. Satan wants to destroy your faith. He wants to discredit your life. He wants to render you absolutely ineffective. Salt that has lost its saltiness, light underneath a bushel. That's what he wants for you so that you cannot lead people to the narrow gate. And he has false teachers by the droves that are rising up, looking influential, seeming to be a sheep, but wildly a wolf. And their goal is to be ravenous. So how do you spot them? And Jesus goes on and gives us some discernment. Verse 16, point number two, the discernment. You will recognize them by their fruits. Look what he says. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, this is kind of interesting. Remember how I just told you verbal inspiration, every single word's chosen by God? Now, Christian, think about this. When is the very first time you ever saw the words thorn and thistles in the Bible? Now, if you are knowing your word, it's back to Genesis 3. And if you remember what happened in Genesis 3, it's it was the curse that God levied primarily against work, that Adam is going to have thorns and thistles when he tries to be agrarian, tries to plow the field, that the very earth is now tainted. That's why it cries out for redemption. It groans for redemption. There's thorns and thistles, but why did the curse come? Because the world's first false prophet had appeared on the scene. And the world's first false teacher had come to Eve first, and Adam was right there next to her. He did nothing. And he deceived her and brought suspicion to the word of God. Did God really say? Now listen, this is massively important because every single false teacher ever will lower the authority of the word of God and raise their own authority. You have to detect that in my preaching, if I'm doing that, or anybody that you sit under. Are they ever lowering the authority of the word of God and raising their own authority? Well, I'm not really sure that, the, that God really means this anymore, but let me tell you what I really do believe. That's how that teeter-totter works. You lower the, the authority of the Word of God, and you raise your own authority. That's the mantra of a false teacher, and Satan did it, and he did it phenomenally well. And Eve was deceived and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he disobeyed. But look at our passage and you're going to see what Jesus says. I want you to count for a second. Can you do this? I'll give you about 10 seconds. Whatever translation you're reading from, count how many times the words fruit or fruits occur in this, in this passage. Now be a student of the Word of God. Underline them. Because that'll really stick out to you. Highlight them. Now you'll really notice it. 
In the ESV, seven. In the NIV, seven. And twice, this, the identical phrase, you will recognize them by their fruits. That's the key. Just like my friend taught me how to recognize counterfeit money, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to show you how to recognize false prophets, how to recognize false teachers. You're going to recognize them by their fruits. Now, that means at least three things that I'm going to tell you in a minute. But let me give you, before we even do that, some ideas of where false teaching is today. Where false teaching is today. Now, I want you to see something before I tell you these. You can't detect false teaching usually at a brief glimpse. They, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. So until they get right to you, they're looking like sheep. They're looking like they're sent from God. The way you detect false teaching, and some of these I'm going to give you of the six, are very difficult, and at first when I explain them, you're going to be thinking, I'm sure, what's wrong with that? You've got to see the implications of where this teaching goes. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to really give you those full implications. I'm going to hope and trust that you actually will study them yourselves, and these notes will be on the internet for you. Let me give you six of them. Modern-day false teachings. The first one is, very obviously, I think everybody in this church is going to know this, the overemphasis on prosperity. By the way, American preachers have exported this. This is our American commodity that unfortunately we've shipped around the world even to Africa. You go to Africa, I'm about to go there in two weeks, we already know they expect us to pay for everything. Well, wait a minute, we're partnering with you. We're, we're helping you do the work that God has given to you. Yeah, we know you are, we're, th we're thankful for you, but you've got to pay. That's the mentality for a lot of, not just Africa, England. You get around the world and you get this exportation of prosperity preaching. It's greed. The constant subject of money is one clear indicator of, of this false teaching. Word faith is famous. Word faith teachers are famous for this. They really truly believe. I could drop names. If you want to hear the names, go back to the Jude series. I dropped a lot, made a lot of you angry. You know what? You needed to hear him because Paul drops names. Jesus drops names. Peter drops names. Moses drops names. We need to know who the false teachers are. But I'm going to tell you what word faith preachers teach. That there's this substance called faith. It's actually a substance that has metaphysical properties. And if you really want to move God, if you really want success in your life, then you've got to gather more of this substance, more of this faith, and then you speak into existence what you want. So they really truly believe you speak into existence these prosperous, successful blessings. Rather than lay your life at the Lord's feet, rather than realize that he is the one that decides how he blesses us, we will be content with what he gives us, not word faith. You speak with a commodity of faith and you create blessings. And 
horribly heretically, they believed this is how God created the earth. He spoke out of this substance of faith and spoke the world into existence. And what God can do, we can do. And that's why they believed we could be little gods. This is heretical. And it's widespread. Not even when it's blatantly understand how I just explained it. Most people in the pew don't get that. They just know, listen, you got a need, God wants to give it to you. He is the genie, he is the machine you put the coin of, of prayer in. And out pops what you want. Well, these false teachers are men, 1 Timothy 6, 5, of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So when you, when you see a preacher flashing an incredibly luxurious lifestyle, which one I did, one, one I watched on TV, had money that people came down out of their pews, put it all over the steps of the platform, and he's running back and forth over top the money, screaming, hallelujah, God is good. Listen, that is heretical false teaching. You got to get your eyes open to it. Remember, I told you I'm not going to give you far down the road of implications. You've got to study that yourself. Here's the second one. Exaggerated view of grace. And this is where you're going to say, well, wait a minute. This sounds pretty good. The first one's kind of obvious. But this one, it might be the most difficult one to detect because God is full of grace. He is full of mercy toward us. But it's the off-balance teaching of God's grace that negates the need to obey him. Now, are you hearing that? Because I just defined for you where it goes astray. It's when you have hyper-grace theology, that's what it's called, all of a sudden, it doesn't really matter if I obey God or not. I live continually in his mercy. But he does expect us to obey his commands. And he has given us the power to do so. But hyper-grace teachers present a God who loves, never condemns Jesus as our Savior, but optional as our Lord. That's hyper-grace whenever you split and delineate the Savior from the Lord. And that is dangerous as you follow the implications. They're very leery, by the way, usually, of the Old Testament God. God in the Old Testament, full of anger, full of wrath, full of judgment. But Jesus, now I like him. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for the New Testament. So I'm just going to camp in the New Testament, and I'm going to pray to Jesus, and I'm going to talk about Jesus, but I'm not going back to the old because that God, he's dangerous. That's the implications. That's the fallout of the exaggerated view of grace. And whether intentionally or not, they present a very angry Old Testament father and a very loving, kind New Testament Jesus. Except Jesus, according to the Hebrews, is the exact rep representation of the father. He shows us what the father is like. Listen, if you ever want to know who God is and what he's like, then study the life of Jesus. That's exactly how the father is. He's revealed himself in these last days through Jesus. But then you get to the third one, antinomianism, which is an incredibly odd word. I don't think probably too many of us go around using this word in Facebook texts. But what's it mean? It just literally means against law. Anti, against, nomianism is Latin for law. So against law. 
And it's a short jump from an overemphasis on grace, which we just looked at, to anything goes because Jesus has set us free. So if the law is no, if we're no, no longer under the law, then it really doesn't matter how we live. It really doesn't matter what we do. You see, antinomianism or against law, here's their teaching. Here's the very core of it. You'll never hear, you'll never hear a, a preacher say, by the way, I'm an antinomianist. They'll never say that. You've got to know the counterfeit watermarks. But what they'll begin to, to speak and what you'll begin to see in their preaching is that repentance to them is a single event at salvation. You never need to repent again. You never need to ask God to forgive you again. He's forgiven all of your sins on the cross. So you're good for life. And it sees obedience to God as good, but not critical for the Christian. Well, faith without works is what? Well, they kind of skip over those verses. It focuses on just get people to the altar, get them to make a decision, play harvest time, and just as I am, so that they make a decision for Jesus. They're huge on making decisions for Jesus, but their preaching is not real big on how do you live for Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus didn't set us free to sin. He set us free from sin and to serve him and worship him forever. Yet this false teaching, antinomianism, has God's love trumping greater than his holiness. And with God basically shutting his eyes to our guilt in order to save us. That's what's, that's what's terribly wrong and corrupt about that preaching. Now, we're at the fourth one, and some of you are probably thinking, man, I, these sound kind of interesting, but I never see this stuff. The first one, maybe. It's all through modern writing. And as I'm about to tell you the fourth one, it's all through modern worship songs. And it's the fourth is this, the deification of man. The deification of man. And it might be actually the most pervasive one today. Because this one starts with us, and it ends with us. It's the constant, repetitive message that God loves us, and that God moves on our behalf. And right now, you're thinking, what's wrong with that? This is really good. We all kind of grew up with bad self-esteem and, and kind of a, a stilted self-worth. We need to know that God loves us, and I would agree, we do. Except it can't end there because all of a sudden God exists to serve us. The reality is we exist to serve him. He saved us to set us free from sin and set us free for him. But the deification of man just camps and stops on sets us free for sin, from sin. And every day we get to luxuriate in the figurative bath of God's warmth and love and kindness and mercy. It's the antidote to a fallen world that they preach. See, the biblical story, friends, is about our glorious God who created us, redeems us, transforms us, and dwells with us forever, and he is at the center of every one of them. He loves us so that we will love him. He saved us so that we will exalt him. He moved toward us so that we will adore him. He is the end. He's the beginning. It all intersects with God. 
If anyone desires to come after me, Jesus preached, let him deny himself, not make much of yourself, not make the gospel centered on you, the gospel centered on Christ. And take up his cross and follow me, for whoever, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then there's a fifth one, and I'm two more to go, one more after this. It's called the lessening of the authority of the word of God, and I've already hinted at this. And I'll, I'll recap it again just momentarily. There's a difference between bad teaching and false teaching. Now, sometimes, and I get called on this, and I, I really am thankful, even if I might feel a little defensive at first, I'm thankful that some of you will come up and say, you know, I'm not sure what you said was right. Well, sometimes I preach badly, and sometimes I teach badly. And there's a difference, however, between false preaching and bad preaching. False teaching and bad teaching. The first one is about motives. The second one's actually more about technique. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Satan's temptations with Eve. And I mentioned it before, but let me read it to you. Satan says to Eve, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Just look at the first four verses on the screen. This is exactly what they do. This is what false teachers do. Has God indeed said? Except none of them are clumsy enough to use those four words because then they're quoting Satan. So what they have to do is they have to lower the word of God. You know, there's mistakes in there. That's what they're going to tell you. And you know what? It was relevant in first century, but we, we live in a different age. So let me dust off the word of God and let me reimagine it for you. Let me rethink it for you. And this is the emergent buzz cry or the worst of the emergent group buzz cry, rethinking God. Rethinking theology, rethinking Paul, rethinking Peter. They're always rethinking, and what they're doing is they're diminishing the authority of the Word of God, and they're saying, you know what? Let me repackage it in a modern, more palatable, more agreeable version. And all the while, the haunting echoes of Satan. Did God really say? Well, there's a final one. There's actually more, but I'm only going to give you one more, and that's this one, rejecting hell. Rejecting hell. The most prevalent, not pervasive, I've given you the most pervasive, but the one where you see so often false teachers undermining the authority of the Scripture is the subject of hell and future punishment. Our world recoils at the message that there's such a thing as a God that would ever send somebody to hell. A God that would actually judge people. It just, just doesn't jive with how the world wants to reimagine God. And so false teachers are wonderfully suited to be able to rethink heaven and hell, reimagine it. Let's kind of empty it of its horror and its terribleness. And let's at worst say, well, hell is just going to be temporary. It's just while you work off the punishment that you deserve, but eventually everybody's going to be given a place in heaven. At worst, it's, well, once you die, you're actually going to blink out of existence and your soul is extinguished for eternity. It's one thing to under, now listen to this, or overemphasize hell, 
but false teachers erase it. It doesn't, it's not palatable to a man-pleasing pulpit. Yet Jesus himself, now listen, this is something that you really ought to stick into your, your knowledge bank. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the entire Bible. And not only Jesus talked about it, virtually every, in fact, I believe every New Testament writer talked about hell. And they, these false teachers create these scenarios of universalism. Don't worry about it. You're all going to make it to heaven. There is an entire book called Love Wins that had this as its basic premise. Now, oddly enough, the author of that book utilized Satan's most favorite tactic and asked over 400 questions. If you read the book, you can count them. There are over 400 questions. And all those questions are ingeniously, very subtly, meant to poke a little bit of a hole in what you really thought you knew about hell and God and heaven. You got to lower the authority of God's word and then reimagine it the way that you want to present it. It's famous. And it's been happening since the third chapter of Genesis. Friends, hell is as real as heaven. And gospel preaching holds out the blessing of one and the horror of the other. In every one of these false teachings, what they do is they lead people away from the narrow gate towards the broad one. And they are spewing from ambassadors of Satan, listen, remember this again, who are arising from within the church. They're not coming from outside the church. The church is pretty vigilant about that. You've got to come from within the church, and that's where you are most influential. But John Calvin said, nothing is more difficult than to counterfeit virtue. If it is not there, it will sooner or later show itself. Now listen, this is why people who are new to the church, whatever church, should not be given a position of leadership right away. They should not be given a platform of teaching right away. And sometimes that grates on them. I've had people leave our church because they wanted right straight to the elder board. They wanted to get in the pulpit. And we said, you know what? Let's get to know you and let's begin to examine your theology. They said, no, I'm not going to stick around for that. And they left. It's not that we should be suspicious. We should be cautious. It takes time for grapes and figs to grow. And by the way, that's one of the subtle points that Jesus is make, making in drawing on the fruit imagery. It takes time to prove what the plant really is. And you're not going to know for sure what it is until you see its product. And its product is the fruit. Sooner or later, the fruit will grow. My brother, my oldest brother, last weekend when I was up in New York, told me of a man who wanted to preach in his church. And he wanted to sit on the leadership board of his church. But there were all kinds of warnings that surfaced that moved the leadership team to finally sit down with him and say no. So the man crafted a document listing all of the perceived failings of the lead pastor and the leadership team, printed them, and put, them, put a copy of each one of them on every car in the parking lot during the worship service. Now, it takes time. That's the fruit. That's the fruit. It grew really quick once he got a no. There are some plants that have fairly quick 
reproduction cycles. This fruit grew quick. As soon as he got no, here it comes. Toxic. But there are a few ways to understand what the fruit is that Jesus refers to. And the most obvious is this. You ready? It's the life and the deeds of the person. Now, kind of an interesting little side note. Until the late or until the mid-1700s, the most prevailing thought of what fruit was was the teaching of the person. So when people preached on this passage in the, in the early 1700s, it was always, you got to examine their teaching. But then better theologians came along and said, well, wait a minute, that's true, you need to examine their teaching, but you also need to examine the life of the preacher. you got to examine their actions. And so it became more prevalent to understand that this is not only the teaching, it's the actions, and listen, and the effect of the teacher on those who follow. What are you reproducing? See, some of that fruit that you've got to discern is, what is that preacher reproducing in those who are following? Because that's where oftentimes the fruit is being manifest. See, a false prophet will sooner or later prove diseased fruit. Always. A true prophet or teacher or pastor will sooner or later produce good fruit. And we see in verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. By the way, you want to hear where Jesus says, examine their followers? Look what he says in this blistering verse in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And what he's teaching is this. This is the law of the fruit. You will show what fruit you have in those who follow you. But then there's briefly, and I'm going to be very quick, one final point, and it's the warning. He's given us the caution. He's taught us the discernment. And now he gives us a warning, finally. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now I want to give one more insight into this that will bring us face to face with the gospel. And I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust, is in, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, listen for the fruit coming, that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, trials, troubles, and tribulation, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Friends, I'm going to end with reminding you that the life of Christ who was given for you and given for me lives in you the moment you come to him for salvation. And that life will bear fruit. It's a promise. But if there is not fruit being born, the only end result is that that branch is cut down and thrown into the fire. There is no possible, I don't think, way to understand that but hell this is the end where false teachers go 
And you know what? And this is the last thing I'm going to tell you. You know what Jesus is doing? He's demonstrating grace by warning them. And that's always what the gospel's warnings do. They're not just, hey, I can't wait to just throw you into hell. That's never what Jesus says. That's never the motive. It's you've got to turn around now. This is the end of you if you don't. This is a loving warning of grace. Repent. And let me show you how to do that. We're going to see that a little bit more next week. Let's pray.